something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Now it's going to be a bit different this time around because we've decided in this episode that we're going to mix it up and have a bit of space and a bit of science fiction in the same episode. Uh, I know we used to do that uh, when we first started but I thought let's give it a go and see what we come up with. Well this can't happen without one person in particular and that would be John Berger. How you doing sir? How's it going? It's all good, all good. So what's been happening at your neck of the woods? Well, see, we, we can't really talk politics on this show. <laughs> Otherwise, there could be a lot to discuss there. Uh, just a little bit. Yeah, just a bit. Not all of it nice either. No. Uh, and uh, it, it just pops up everywhere. <laughs> you can't get away from it. It's just everywhere. <laughs> That's... One of the drawbacks of being probably the country that is one of the most influential in the world. What Mm -hmm. happens here generally resonates. But apart from that. (laughs) Oh, it's just been swell. When we were on one of the previous episodes, you were talking about your Star Wars project. Oh, my God, I'm done. I'm finally freaking (laughs) done. Oh, yeah. I started it in 2005. And for those of you who don't know, I have the Star Wars laser discs from before George Lucas decided to tamper with it. So it's one of the last bastions of Star Wars before the special edition. And I said, you know what? I'm going to convert these over to DVD. And I'd capture the files. I'd work on it a little bit and something would happen and I'd lose focus. And suddenly it's a couple of years later. You know, I really need to go back and work on that. It's like, oh, these files are crap. Let me recapture them. And just kept doing that over and over and over again. I am finally done. I finally got brand new captures of all the files last year, and I decided that's it. I'm doing this, and I found a lot of tricks that that helped to improve the video quality and all of that. So it's pretty much about as good as it's going to get now. Well, with access to only consumer-grade capture equipment, of course. Uh, If I had access to the really expensive stuff, I'm sure it'd be much better. But so I finally have... On DVD, the actual, you know, and I upscaled them a little bit so that they're 16 by 9 now instead of just a flat, you know, 4 by 3 kind of thing window box. Yeah. So it's all good. You know, the, the, the interview is there and all of that. It's done. And I even took photos of all of the Laserdisc covers inside and out and cleaned them up in Photoshop, stitched them together, and I actually made a 16-page booklet that preserves the inside and outside covers for each of the laser discs. I just went a little bit nuts on this, but I figured, hey, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. Yeah, there's no point in doing it half-hearted, is it? Yeah, but it's done. It's, none of this really matters because I've already got the despecialized editions. I've got the Team Negative 1 version of the original, which are infinitely superior, but... It's just one of those where I just I wanted to get it checked off finally. Twelve years, a twelve-year journey, and it's finally done. That sounds like something out of Star Trek, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, I was going to go between you know the five-year journey, or I was going to go to Gilligan's Island's three hours tour. You know, three hours. T- <laughs> I just couldn't decide which one to do, so I just let it go. <laughs> so I think we should 
crack on with the show. Before we start, have you seen Hidden Figures? Yes, I have. What do you think? I was amazed by it. Um, yeah, I know. As you know, it's about two hours long, which is about average for a movie these days. And it didn't feel like two hours long. Nope. Um, it was just enjoyable. Yeah. And there's so many things that you pick up about behind the scenes of those days that you, you've not seen in anything else that's out there. I mean, I've, I've got your, your things like From the Earth to the Moon and all those kind of things, but it didn't have anything about this situation in there. I, I just couldn't get my head around some of it, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that Catherine was just... She she must be such an amazing lady. Oh, yeah. And that's the other thing about this movie is that it's based around real people. Yeah. And it is it- a movie about people. Just thinking about the way we have... I don't know if you can use the term evolved. I don't know if that's the right word to use. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the way we've, we've moved on, shall I say, yes. uh, since yeah, then. Yeah, that works. It's it's still difficult to believe that we were like that as a, a race of people. Well, you know, having lived in that era, not, well, not that I lived in that era, but uh, in the aftermath of that era, I can see it. You know, in some degrees, I still see it. But yeah, I mean, the movie it was just it was a good movie. It was when the credit when the credits started rolling. I actually wanted to see it again. Yeah, it was it was also a feel good movie as well. Oh yeah, definitely a feel good movie. Um, um, Kevin Costner and the sledgehammer scene. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. That was amazing. I, I just thought to myself during that movie also, is the character he's playing, is he trying to give up smoking? Because he's got through a hell of a lot of gum. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as I said, one, one of, the, uh, one of the, the scenes that I found quite extraordinary was the fact that these are engineers at the top of their game building and designing spacecraft that eventually, I know that was it was a different program, but eventually it would get humans to the moon. Uh-huh. Yet they can't get the dimensions right to get a computer system through the doorway. <laughs> and they have to use a sledgehammer to, to make the doorway bigger so yeah. that they can get the IBM through it. Well... <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's the little things, I guess. I, I don't know. There wasn't a lot of priority on that, I suppose. No. I, I also like the, the situation where, you know, they've been working on, on the machine for days on end and they can't get it to do anything. And she just comes in, flicks a switch and there we go. Yeah. <laughs> and I have been in that situation. Oh, my God, yes. And it's so annoying when it happens. <laughs> Somebody just freaking out that something's not working. I take one look at it and say, um, that needs to be done. Yeah. Okay. Done. <laughs> Sometimes you just need to stand back and look at it from a different perspective. Yeah. Um, the one thing that really cemented this movie for me, though, was at the at the very end when they actually said the real facts about the women that are being represented mm-hmm. and, and what they did in life and what they went on to accomplish. I was like, that is so cool. Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that Catherine has actually got a building named after her and that's a facility, uh-huh. that really made me th- feel good at that point that, you know, that she was so well respected after that that they named a building after her because it takes a lot to have a building named after Neil Armstrong only recently got his own building, you know, and 
Who was the other one? Chris Craft. He, he's one of the flight directors that uh, had a building named after him. Because I'm so used to these facilities being called other things, when they get renamed, I'm thinking... Now, where's that one again? <laughs> yeah, I knew you'd like that movie. It's just so well done. It was very well put together. And I think also Pharrell did a very good job with, with the soundtrack as well because it just mm-hmm. fitted in very well oh, yeah. with what was going on. And it, it, to, to a point, it, it, sometimes if, if you notice a soundtrack is there, they sometimes haven't done a good job because you're noticing it more, but it just blended. Mm-hmm. Um, it just really was a good movie. And I'm looking forward to it coming out as a retail thing because I want to see what extras are going to be on that. Oh, uh, well, in fact, I'm looking at the page right now. At least here in the U.S., it's coming out April 11th. Right. I don't. I mean, I guess you could always import it. I don't know what it's going to be doing over there, though. Mm-hmm. But, oh, yeah, I'm buying that one for sure. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit later here, obviously, because we're uh, a couple of months behind you with the release uh, of it. Cause it's in- well, you know, I've actually seen times where, granted, it's not first-run theaters. It goes into second-run theaters. Mm-hmm. But I have seen a lot of times over here where a movie is in second-run theaters up to the last week before it's released on disc. All right, okay. I've, I've seen it happen, so never say never. Because I was very surprised that our local cinema would be showing it on opening weekend because it being a very small cinema, it's only got four screens, and I was very surprised at the amount of people that actually went to see it. And it was there was a broad spectrum of people actually watching it because I know you said when you went to see it it was a lot of um, shall we say senior citizens it was a Sunday crowd yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm very surprised at the amount of people that was going to see it. there was young people um, there was quite a few families there actually going to see it um, well, I know a friend of mine is a teacher down in uh, North Carolina mm-hmm. and he they they called it a field trip but he took a bunch of his engineering students to go see it and they loved it the, the reason I think they had more families and things going to see it here is because it was opening weekend for Fifty Shades Darker as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh yeah, those two are comparable. <laughs> I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> but yeah, I would recommend anybody to go and see it because even if you're not really into space, it's a social history film at the end of the day. Yep. And if you like movies where the underdog comes through this is definitely the movie for you it's totally a feel-good movie yeah it's a, it's available for pre-order on amazon.co.uk but they don't have a release date right but here in the states it's april 11 for sure okay cool we'll have a, a short break and when we come back we'll start the first part of the show with a bit of space this is Moscow. This is Moscow Gordon. On the 12th of April, the Soviet Union orbited a spaceship around the Earth with a man on board. The astronaut is a Soviet citizen, Major Gagarin Yuri Alexeyevich. As you know, Yuri's Night is an annual global space party that was created to celebrate human achievement in space. Last year, I was asked to help organise a Yuri's Night UK event. 
Well, Eurosnight UK is having a hiatus in 2017 due to other projects and priorities, but we are putting out feelers for 2018 already, giving us 14 months to find a good venue, get sponsorship for funding, and generally create something special. If you want to get involved and be part of our team of volunteers that can put together this event, then get in touch with us by sending an email to yurisnightuk at gmail.com and then we can start the ball rolling. It's going to be a fantastic event and let's rock the planet. Yep, got it. Did you know that right now we have a spacecraft orbiting the moon? The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been at the moon for over seven years, providing unprecedented detail into our nearest neighbor in space. I'm Noah Petro, and for more information about the moon and the LRO mission, go to nasa.gov slash LRO and follow us on Twitter at LRO underscore NASA. This is TGP Nominal. NASA is looking at flying astronauts on its first launch for its next-generation heavy-lift rocket, a mission that could possibly send the crew to orbit the moon about the same time as the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 in 2019. Exploration Mission 1, or EM1, as it's currently manifested, <laughs> would see... Starting already. <laughs> ...the first flight of NASA's Space Launch System, or you guessed it, SLS. It was due to launch in late 2018 with an uncrewed mission. Um, the first crewed mission would allow them to follow on sometime between 2021 and 2023. I have asked Bill Gerstenmeier, uh, who's the Associate Administrator for Human Exploration and Operations, to initiate a study to assess the feasibility of adding a crew to the Exploration Mission 1, which will be the first integrated flight of SLS and Orion, wrote Robert Lightfoot, NASA Acting Administrator, in an email to employees. I'm not um, sure if that's a good thing or not. I mean, I know they did that with, um, with the shuttle, but the shuttle can't actually fly itself. But you can fly a rocket, but they, they want to go straight in there with a crew without actually bench testing it first. Well, you know what? Hold on. I guess you could say the whole history has been you launch it with a crew. Yeah. Um, in, in recent years, though, there's, there's always been the unmanned thing first and then... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because now we have the technology to do that, so... And we also have the health and safety... <laughs> Yeah. Which we didn't have in the well, that's 60s. That's what I mean. We have the... Yeah. I, ooh. Wow. I'm kind of torn. But the problem is, the SLS, that beast is expensive. They're talking like $1 billion per launch at this point. That's a lot of money. I don't know. I honestly don't know what the right answer is on that one. I think they're just trying to fast track things, and uh, I mean, if you can bypass the uh, the unmanned part of it, which would uh, you know add another probably ten years of of testing and things, if it works straight off with a crew, we could be launching sooner. Didn't they say that they're looking to launch in two thousand eighteen? Two thousand nineteen. They want to run the first manned launch with uh, an orbit of the moon for the 50th anniversary of the lunar missions. 
Although, with all due respect to NASA, that's a lot of money to spend on a symbolic loop around the moon that they don't seem to be wanting to have any interest in anyway because they want to get to Mars. And, and this is NASA. We're talking taxpayer dollars. Yeah. So, uh, uh. Now, related to that, uh, Congressman John Culberson and Robert Aderholt introduced a resolution on February the 15th to christen the first launch of the SLS, the CERN-1, in honor of Apollo 17 astronaut Eugene Cernan, who who died in January. Cernan was devoted to making America's space program the best in the world, Culberson said, and I can't think of a more fitting way to honour his legacy than the first launch of a space launch system carrying Captain Cernan's name. The SLS represents an opportunity to forge forward with Captain Cernan's vision to push the boundaries of space exploration, said Culberson. Yes... He did. He did want to push it forward, but he also wanted to go back to the moon. In 2015, the House of Representatives approved a bill that included a provision to rename the SLS through a student competition, but it did not become law. If Culberson's and Ada Holt's uh, resolution passes the House and the Senate and is signed by the President, the Cernan One would become the latest US rocket to bear an astronaut's name. Blue Origin, the space flight company founded by Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, named its suborbital and orbital vehicles the New Shepard and the New Glenn after the Mercury astronauts Alan Shepard and John Glenn respectively. And also, Orbital ATK has christened its cargo spacecraft after late US astronauts included in that list would be David Lowe C, Gordon Fullerton, Janice Voss, Rick Husband and Alan Poindexter. I'm proud to introduce this resolution, said Colbertson, to ensure Cernan's role in making America's space program the best in the world is never forgotten. I like that idea. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And I can't see any reason why that wouldn't go through. See, I was going to make a political comment. I'm not going to. <laughs> it's so tempting. Uh, actually, this is related to uh, the SLS as well. With all of the budget problems that it's had and, and all the criticisms that it's had, it actually ended up getting an endorsement from... Alan Stern, who is on the board of directors for the Commercial Space Flight Federation. He said that uh, CSF and its members believe strongly in the exploration of space of all kinds, including commercial purposes. To that end, CSF announced today that we see many potential benefits in the development of NASA's space launch system. Uh, there are bright futures across the spectrum of commercial space. The SLS can be a resource that benefits commercial space flight and makes our future even brighter. Now keep in mind, the CF CSF also includes SpaceX, Blue Origin. So in a way, they're kind of competitors to NASA. Mm -hmm. I guess as a governmental entity, they're not really supposed to be for commercial flight. Nonetheless, it's kind of a ringing endorsement, but I guess they realize they're all on the same team. Yeah. No matter how you look at it, they're all on the same team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was, that was actually kind of cool. And when you think about it, SpaceX, even with their Falcon Heavy, isn't going to be able to have the kind of capacity that the SLS is going to have. No. Because they're talking about the SLS, the, the second iteration of it, 
is going to be able to handle roughly 230,000 pounds of cargo. That's a lot of cargo. Mm-hmm. Whereas SpaceX, they're talking about like not even half that. It makes sense that they finally all say, hey, we're on the same team here, guys. Because originally I thought that what they were going to do was build the Orion capsule that could be retrofitted to any of the other formations. As we know, uh, what did they test it on? Was that an Atlas V? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think it was an Atlas V they put it on. So it works on the Atlas V. If something was to go wrong with the SLS, so they had to, you know, pull the fleet back, you could put the Orion on many different spacecraft through the other commercial companies. That's what I thought they were going to do. And then they brought out the Ares. (laughs) Yeah, which Uh wasn't very good at all. And SLS isn't the best... I don't think, but uh, and, and there's a lot of people that don't, really don't like the SLS. But if it's going to do the job, then it's, it's great. The thing with the SLS is it's going to be so damn expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, for as much as they mock the shuttle for being an expensive program, uh, SLS isn't exactly going to be cost efficient either. No. I mean, the shuttle would have been okay if we didn't have the Challenger disaster, I think, because a lot of their commercial interests kind of faded out after that. I mean, they should know anyway that anything that has a big rocket underneath of it has the potential to explode. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, oh, wow, look at the shuttle. The space shuttle's gone. Wow, this is really dangerous. Uh, if you didn't know that it was really dangerous before Challenger, you haven't been paying attention, you know? <laughs> so I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not, you know, but you know, as long as you're talking about that, speaking of uh, Challenger, a soccer ball that was received from Challenger has made it to the space station. Yeah, I read about this. So uh, this is actually the property of Ellison Onizuka, and it was one of many different items that were retrieved uh, from the ocean after the explosion. So all of the stuff that was about the shuttle and the hardware and proprietary to NASA, obviously they kept all of that. Mm-hmm. But any personal property was returned to the families once they were recovered. And one of them was this soccer ball. The way that it works is that uh, currently his daughter, uh, who was 16 at the time, she is now what they call a Falcon mom because the Falcons are the name of the high school team from, oh, no, wait here, uh, Clear Lake High School in Houston, Texas. So now her kids go to this high school, and it turns out that the son of station commander uh, Shane Kimbra goes to that high school as well. All right. So by using that little link, she was able to get the soccer ball up into space where it was originally intended to be with the shuttle with the Challenger disaster. Wow. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Chris Ferguson, who was the commander of the last shuttle mission, took a United States flag up to the International Space Station with the intention of the first U.S. astronaut to go back to the ISS using an American spacecraft that can go back to Earth to take it back with him or her. That's cool. So I thought it was quite a nice touch. So some of these little symbolic things are still nice to see. I don't know about spending a billion dollars to send someone to orbit the moon, though. (laughs) Yeah, just a little thing, you know. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's quite nice. The UK Space Agency 
is investing £4.12 million in a national propulsion test facility, giving the UK a new facility for space technology testing. The facility will allow UK companies and academia to test and develop space propulsion engines. The planned facility will be based at Westcott in Buckinghamshire with its strong history of rocketry, research and defence and and space development, building on existing facilities. Now, (laughs) Westcott is a stone's throw away from my hometown and when I was a kid, they were testing rockets there. They, they phased it out in the 1980s. And I can remember as a kid, whenever they were testing rockets, you could hear it for miles. <laughs> and yeah. it used to make the walls shake on the buildings. <laughs> and it was also the, uh, the housing for the early warning system in case of a nuclear strike, which they also used to test those facilities quite regular, which... They didn't always tell you they were going to do it. (laughs) So you had the early warning sirens going off, and I can always remember being at school, and one went off, and the teacher said to us, you wait in the classroom, I'll go and find out what's going on. We're thinking the worst, and we're hiding under desks (laughs) at school, forgetting the fact that we're on the third floor of a a tower block. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, the UK Space Agency will add a new vacuum testing facility to the Westcott site, and this will allow scientists to simulate high-altitude testing of thrusters that can produce up to 2,000 newtons of thrust. Existing test chambers will also be upgraded to improve testing capabilities in the uh, 2N range, which is the 2,000 newton, and uh, the smaller 1N thruster testing chamber will also be opened for the whole Westcott community, which also includes private businesses to use. Thrusters of this size are pretty small compared with the kind of power needed to launch a spacecraft into orbit and beyond. The first stage of the Soyuz rocket, for example which now carries the astronauts to the space station, produces around 190,000 newtons of thrust. Small thrusters of the size likely to be tested at Westcott are more suited to the movement of spacecraft within space, where, because of the lack of gravity and friction, much less thrust is required to generate the movement. One company taking part in this project are Moog UK, who created the engine that placed NASA's Juno spacecraft into orbit around Jupiter after a five-year journey to the giant planet. Moog UK is offering the use of its own testing facilities to the National Propulsion Test Facility. The UK Science and Technology Facilities Council, yes, you guessed it, STFC, (laughs) through its Rutherford Appleton Laboratory, RAL, um, space facility will act as an independent broker for the facility uh, access and European Space Agency will be advising and overseeing the initial detailed design phase before a review to move to full implementation. Catherine Courtney, the interim CEO of the UK Space Agency, said our investment in the National Space Propulsion Facility will add several new capabilities to the UK's space sector and build upon what is already a world-class UK space propulsion sector. 
Opening these facilities up to UK companies and academia will allow them to develop and test future propulsion engines. We hope this will develop the UK's competitive edge in space propulsion and produce the next generation of propulsion engines. We hope that the UK companies will continue to make successful contributions to the international missions, such as the um, Leros 1B engine involved in Juno. The capability will allow cost-effective development and the testing of even more impressive engines for the interplanetary travel, as well as for significant commercial and telecommunications satellite markets. Other UK users of the facility via the Airborne Engineering Test Chamber are expected to include Reaction Engines Limited who are currently testing advanced rocket nozzle technology for their Sabre engines. Now that is exciting. That's nice. I'm looking forward to when those Sabre engines start going properly because the vehicle that they're going to be attached to, the Skylon, looks great. I mean, this is a vehicle that can take off from a runway like a plane, get to a certain height and then off into orbit. So um, that's quite a good machine. It, It looks quite menacing as well. It looks like an ICBM and an SR-71 Blackbird had a love child. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking something (laughs) along those lines. It is a mean-looking piece of kit. With the facility investment from the UK Space Agency, who will chair the steering board for this national facility, and with the STFC's RAL space team bringing up the experience of the test facility management to the project, this is an excellent example of UK cross-government industries and uh, the European Space Agency's collaboration, which will benefit the immediate stakeholders involved in the project, as well as wider propulsion community by opening access to the facility. It's quite amazing that they've actually done something with this because, as I say, we haven't had anything happening in the UK space-wise for a long time. And when we stopped developing space launch vehicles in the early 1970s and only ever launched one satellite into orbit, but we still generate almost £12 billion over the last decade... And the the new development, um, what they're going to try and do is capture 10% of the global space market by 2030. Good luck. It's great to see that um, the government are actually starting to do something. Yeah, true. I mean, for years, the UK government said, leave it to the Americans and the Russians. But we had some fantastic rockets that we were sending up in the early 70s. Granted, we couldn't launch them from the UK... We didn't have the right facilities here. We had to ship all our uh, rockets to Australia to launch them. Really? You guys couldn't have asked us to launch them from Florida? Yeah. <laughs> we shipped them all the way to Australia to launch what our the rockets. Hell? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, whatever. <laughs> And we had ideas for satellites um, that we possibly could have got a satellite into space before Sputnik. But the government had wasted money on aircraft test vehicles that never actually went anywhere. They just ended up in a graveyard and it was just a waste of money. So the money they, they could have saved there, we could have sent satellites into space before the Russians. I've seen documentaries about it recently and it does really annoy me. (laughs) 
a little bit. <laughs> the amount of money we have wasted over the years in this country. Oh, oh you're not alone in that one at all. Uh, <laughs> hello, F-35. Yeah. The thing is with the F-35 is that we've started building aircraft carriers for that vehicle. What? I'm sorry, that thing is never going to go anywhere. So you can imagine how much money we're going to waste on that. <laughs> uh, in fairness, though, if it's if it's built to handle the F-35, it could probably be built to handle any other jet that we make. So maybe it's not a total loss. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, Got to look at it that way. <laughs> we might have some planetary neighbors. Well, kind of, sort of. Not really. I mean, it's still 39 light years away. But uh, it, it's recently been announced. In fact, I think it was yesterday as we record this anyway that uh, NASA has found seven near-Earth-sized planets uh, orbiting a star called TRAPPIST-1. It's a trap! You knew that one was coming. This is actually based on the TRAPPIST Observatory. <laughs> Get ready, here we go. Transisting and Planetesimals Small Telescope. <laughs> anyway, it's actually in conjunction with that, plus the Very Large Telescope in Chile, Spitzer Space Telescope, and uh, they actually found that there are seven planets orbiting this TRAPPIST-1 star about 39 light years away. Three of them might be habitable. Now, not saying that there's indications of life or water or anything, but this is a red dwarf star, and these three are in what would be considered to be a habitable zone for a red dwarf. All right. So, obviously, there's so much about this that we can only speculate about. Mm -hmm. But... Just the fact that it is in an area that could be habitable is kind of cool. Not that we'll ever get there in our lifetimes. No. But, you know, and then there are other issues that red dwarf stars are, well, they're, they're, they're tumultuous. So we don't even know if these have proper atmospheres. The thing is that they, they found these planets. And it turns out that like 85% of the stars in our galaxies are red dwarfs. So if they're anything like this one, that could be a whole bunch of Earth-sized planets out there. The only way that we know about these planets is because those planets are orbiting on the same plane as we are. You know, because you figure they could be orbiting in any of th 360 degrees around that star. But they just so happen to be orbiting in a way that they get between us and that red dwarf. Just think about how many red dwarfs there are just in our galaxy where the planets might be in an orbit that we can't see them right now. Yeah. But yet they're still possibly fully habitable, maybe even have life. You never know. That's it. But yeah, so 39 light years away, and we found planets that could be like Earth and habitable. I mean, I, I read a, an article that they're saying there's seven, possibly ten. Oh, uh, they're, they're saying maybe ten on that one. Yeah. I know it's been seven for sure. And have you seen Google's doodle for that? Yeah, and how it's quickly adorable. that went up. That went up super fast, and it's adorable. Uh, my other half found it this morning when she was doing some stuff online, and she actually said, I can sit here for hours and watch this. Yes, it is just so cute. <laughs> and the thing is, when uh, they all popped up and started waving back at Earth, and she started <laughs> waving back at the planets, I mean, that's, that's what it comes to. And then just a look on Earth's face, like, what? Yahoo! <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminded me of the, uh, the, the little uh, Rosetta animations. Oh, yeah. Except those are depressing. 
It was towards the end, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've recently just got hold of a, um, one of the Sky at Night documentaries uh, called Good Night Rosetta. And uh, it was... That was quite an emotional one. Oh, yeah. Because... <laughs> um, you had Matt Taylor, you know, the, the chief scientist with the, the shirts and the tattoos. He was there with the, the guy from the BBC. And you could see he was getting a little bit emotional. And they, they had a microphone on him, and the only words he could say was... That last two kilometres, we've never been there, so the stuff we're getting now is unbelievable. It's this trajectory, this impact, is giving us something we couldn't get in any other way. So... We're getting this because we're crashing it. So we're, we're sacrificing the spacecraft to get this science. What is the atmosphere in there at the minute? It's horrible. This is the opposite of what they do all the time. They spend their life making sure spacecraft are safe, and they've made this spacecraft do the opposite. You look at the people in that room that have spent their careers on this mission. When I was in the room, you could feel it. You felt this deflation. How does this compare to watching Philae disappear onto the surface? Well, Philae was landing and going to do something afterwards. This is, as soon as it touches, there's no more. There's no more Rosetta. Operationally, of course. We've all got the science, yeah. But, you know, for this, it's there's nothing after, yeah. So the carrier signal's still pretty strong. Three minutes to go. And this must be data from very close to the comet. Yeah. This is good. This is a few tens of metres now, isn't it? Still there. Oh. That's it. It's just confirmed LOS. Signal's gone. And how do you feel? I just feel, actually, for that team the most, because as scientists working on this mission, we've still got stuff to do, but they've had to do something that's so counterintuitive, so against what they do, and this is cutting that team up. And so um, this is the end of the Rosetta mission. Thank you and goodbye. Congratulations. It's been an amazing mission. Be all right. Bugger. Thank you very much for that. Thanks, really man. Appreciate that. Oh, Thank you. Oh, good man. Good man. <laughs> there you go. Oh. Right, what's the next mission? No. <laughs> there is only one mission. <laughs> Let's see. Why do we become emotionally attached to stuff like that? Uh, I oh, can well. understand him because he's been working on it for well, years. Well, sure, sure, but... sure. <laughs> Yeah, that that's well, you know, in the same vein as those planets, scientists are actually looking to get imaging from the black hole at the center of our galaxy. Big black hole is called Sagittarius A, and it's it's basically what's holding our galaxy together. Like duct tape and the force. <laughs> it's, it's like that Sagittarius A. It almost sounds like a, a really bad sci-fi B movie. <laughs> <laughs> the black hole on Sagittarius A. <laughs> but yeah, so they've got a bunch of observatories around the world getting ready, and uh, they're going to start taking radio signals from it, and they're just going to work simultaneously at, at 12 of these different facilities. 
and what they plan on doing is just getting it all together and uh, they're going to take what do they say the resolution maintained is going to be at 50 micro arc seconds i wish i knew what that meant <laughs> but basically what it comes down to is it can view a grapefruit on the moon's surface wow yeah, and, and so they're just going to aim it right to Sagittarius A, and they're going to see if we can see what's going on there. So basically what they expect it to be is basically you could see a bunch of stellar dust and so forth with just a big splotch of nothing in the middle of it. So yeah, they're actually going to try to look at the core of the galaxy. How cool is that? It doesn't seem feasible, but it's something that you never thought would ever be possible. Think of some of the pictures that Hubble has taken. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I remember the one story about there was this spot up in the sky that always seemed to be empty. You know, just nothing there. And they pointed Hubble at that for something like three months. And when it came back, hundreds and hundreds of galaxies. Very clearly hundreds of spiral galaxies and so forth in what we thought was just a nothingness. You never know. It, it's possible. Yeah. That'd be kind of cool, though, to see, yep, that right there, that's the center of the Milky Way. I would just be like, wow. Have you ever thought about what would happen to the uh, International Space Station after it's retired? Oh. Mm. No, actually, now that you mention it. I would have figured that they would have just... Well, I guess it's too big to... They could send it back to Earth, although it's huge. That would probably be a bad thing, even in the middle of the Pacific. While international agreements work out how long the station will last after its planned budget uh, ends in 2024, one startup private company has a vision that could build a new station on pieces of the old one. It's called Axiom Space, and uh, its chief executive is Michael Safradini, the former NASA program manager of the ISS. The company has ambitious plans to send up a module in 2020 to attach to the space station and then to remove that module when the space station program ends. And depending what the partners want, Axiom could even remove other pieces of the ISS to connect to it. Amir Blackman, Axiom's uh, Vice President of Strategic Development, suggests that such pieces could be salvaged and then put to new use, including a storage module, the Canada arm, and even the, the cupola, uh, the 360-degree window. But he emphasised this is at an early-stage speculation. Axiom right now is focusing on getting its module launched on time. If that all goes to plan, Module 1 will have the capacity for seven astronauts and will be fully self-sufficient, including such items as a galley, sleeping quarters, experimental racks and a life support system. It would attach to the Node 2 docking adapter, but will also come equipped with its own docking adapters for spacecraft to dock to, if feasible, considering sight lines, loads and other considerations. NASA has completed a first phase study with Axiom and is now doing a deeper study that may be completed within the next few months. Blackman said the module would launch on a heavy lift cargo rocket and would have an advantage over most ISS modules. Most of the equipment is inside the shell, removing the need for spacewalks. It also would have more miniaturized computers to do more simply because the module is newer than the rest of the ISS. A private company can do other things like 
accepting tourists more frequently or doing advertising sponsorships, he said. But those are future streams of revenue. In the near term, the company is focused on training astronauts from other countries whose nations would pay, as well as doing additive or 3D manufacturing in space under an agreement with the company Made in Space, which is the one that made the printer that's on the ISS at the moment. Startup funding came from a seed in around 2016 when Axiom was first founded. The $3 million round was led by... Cam Gaffarian, the, the chief executive of Stinger Gaffarian Technologies, SGT, a company that trains NASA <laughs> astronauts and does the uh, ISS mission preparation. So all the training is procured out by NASA. NASA don't do the training themselves. Axiom is now doing a Series A round that they plan to close early this year and in future years, Blackman noted, Axiom has planned to spread further into the solar system. We're talking about true commercialization and industrialization of low Earth orbit, he said. Step one is manufacturing stuff in low Earth orbit, while step two would be to put a module around, say, the moon to test life support for deep space exploration systems. According to Blackman, the vision is to go where the customers need, even as far as Mars, if that's where the demand lies in the future decades. Now, every time we keep coming across these things about going forward, the moon keeps coming up. Amazing how that works. <laughs> the pictures I've seen of the, the module that they're thinking to put up there, it's actually got engines and things on it anyway, so that it can manoeuvre away. So you, you basically need some kind of lifting equipment up there that can manoeuvre the modules to their module and um, then it's got the engines that can move away. I mean, the, the Russians will do what they want to do with, with their part. I mean, that, that's pretty self-sufficient, the, the area that they've got on theirs. So they've got plans of making their own um, space station anyway. Maybe that'll happen. Well, no, they've got their buddies in China now, so it probably will. Yeah. Just to show us up. It's good that someone's thinking ahead, because otherwise we're going to be stuck with another problem like we did when they defunct the space shuttle. Yeah. When you talk about the countries that are big into space and launching and all of that, India never seems to really come into that line of thought. Uh, but they now have a new world record. They launched 104 satellites yeah. in a single mission. 104. Yeah. Now, granted, these are like the little micro satellites. Yeah, the little CubeSat things. But, yeah, those uh, little CubeSats. Uh, Out of those 104, 96 of them belong to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Israel, Kazakhstan, the United Arab Emirates, Switzerland, and the Netherlands are the uh, owners of the other ones. But, yeah, 104 satellites totally crushing the previous record of 37, yeah. which now seems kind of paltry, <laughs> uh, that was launched by Russia back in 2014. Yeah, that's a, a big difference. But then CubeSat technology has just gone by leaps and bounds in in the last couple of years, hasn't it? It's just taken oh, over yeah. completely. Oh, I yeah. mean, India's going for like the, the smaller things. Could you imagine if SpaceX decided to launch a bunch of those? Oh, yeah, record's broken. 6,000 CubeSats have been launched. You know? <laughs> Unfortunately, we can no longer go into orbit because there's too much stuff up there. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> but uh, speaking of satellites, I'm sure you know that, that classic image, The what is it, the big blue marble? Yeah. The, you know, everybody, just about everybody knows that image to see it. We've got a new one from some of the newer satellites. It's amazing. 
absolutely amazing. You've got to see it. It's one of the, the numerous uh, geostationary satellites that we have going on, mostly to monitor the weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this one is called the GOES, of course, you know, because it's geostationary operational environmental satellite. Got to have the acronym. <laughs> so this one is this one is GOES 16, and it's the first of four of of the new weather satellites. This part bothers me. The whole group of them is called Gozer. Yeah. Okay, think back to Ghostbusters. Yeah. That is not a good name there, folks. <laughs> the, these satellites are going to plan the destruction of Earth. <laughs> Just ready. Sooner or later, they're going to get a weather thing back from those satellites saying, Are you a god? Then we're going to be in trouble, especially if somebody says no. <laughs> but no, this, this one, it, it went up uh, from a ULA Atlas V rocket uh, last year. And it's got a geostationary orbit of about uh, about a little over 22,000 miles, roughly 36,000 kilometers for you metric folks. And right now, that uh, GO-16 satellite has a resolution of at least four times as good as the other satellites that are up there. And you should see the quality of the photos that this thing is returning. I mean, this thing is so so sensitive, it can track down a satellite down to a resolution of about six miles. Jeez. So basically, just about any major lightning bolt goes off, this thing will see it. It's amazing. But no, you, you've got to see the photos from that thing. They're just, they're astounding. And then there's even another one that it got with uh, the moon in the background. Yeah. And it looks fantastic. I love this stuff. Could you imagine if the New Horizons had this kind of technology? Yeah, it would be fantastic. Oh. But I mean, even considering the, the resolution of the stuff it had on board, the what we got from it was oh yeah pretty outstanding that's amazing it's just one of those things where it's like man if only if only we had this back then time to send a new one up to pluto now we were mentioning the the hubble space telescope earlier and as you know it's been orbiting the earth for more than a quarter of a century and it's sent back some amazing photos in its time oh my god i love it the telescope got its last maintenance sweep in 2009 but now there's talk of the government sending another repair mission to the 27-year-old telescope. Good. That's, well, they should. I, I mean, I understand that they they plan on sending another one up there, but the thing is, it's completely functional. Mm-hmm. So why not? Thing is, it's going to be tricky without a space shuttle. Now, well, okay, point. Now, the Hubble was launched in 1990 with a great fanfare, but astronomers quickly realized that it wasn't working correctly. A defect in the mirror resulted in a blurry image of objects that the telescope should have been able to see crystal clear. Now, astronauts repaired the telescope in 1993 by adding an instrument to correct the problem, essentially giving it a pair of glasses. That was the first of five missions that added new cameras, repaired gyroscopes, and replaced batteries. Science had hoped to operate Hubble at the same time as the James Webb Space Telescope, currently planned for launch in late 2018. But it's not a successor to Hubble. Webb is optimized for infrared wavelengths extended to just into the visible range, or orange, <laughs> while Hubble operates at ultraviolet and visible wavelengths extending to just near infrared. The two instruments are complementary with a slight overlap. There is no successor to Hubble. Huh. 
So that is a big problem. Continuing technological and management problems with the James Webb telescope may well delay that instrument's debut beyond Hubble's ability to survive without any further maintenance. If so, tremendously valuable yet low-cost scientific opportunity to simultaneously examine the same objects at high resolution across an extremely broad range of optical and infrared frequencies may slip away. But huh. a Wall Street Journal report has reported that the Sierra Nevada Corporation has put forward a proposal to send a crude dream chaser to service the aging Hubble Space Ooh. Telescope. Not only that, but it has also been put forward as a possible space ambulance for the ISS. Now, we here at TGP Nominal have been following dream chasers since its conception really and we love that little disney designed <laughs> shuttle disney <laughs> no that's what i think it looks like it looks like if the space shuttle was designed by disney that's what it would look like <laughs> the discussions are still preliminary with no specific plans and senior White House aides or administration advisors are currently overseeing the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Um, if any of those didn't like something, they could veto the concept. Decisions about any potentially major NASA initiative await the appointment of a new administrator. So hands are tied until the new boss comes. But the thing is, everything that this proposal has been put forward illustrates Trump's guiding principles when it comes to space investments. Industry and transition officials agree the focus is on seeking dramatic but relatively inexpensive space projects that can be readily understood by the average American. The Hubble repair proposal has also attracted administration officials' attention because it appears to meet still other important White House criteria. The goal is to put a lid on federal expenditures for space by fostering public-private partnerships while devising projects that can be completed within the president's current four-year term. Sierra Nevada is betting the Trump administration's enhanced interest in commercial space projects could revive Hubble's rejuvenation bid. The company twice presented its proposal to transition officials, according to one person who was familiar with the details. Sierra Nevada is currently developing a cargo variant of the Dream Chaser to re resupply the International Space Station. That vehicle is not scheduled to begin deliveries into the, the space station until 2019. However, the craft was designed from the start to theoretically support a crew, and the company did make substantial progress towards a crew vehicle during NASA's commercial crew program before Dream Chaser was dropped from the program in 2014. It's not clear how much work, funding or additional testing will be required to upgrade the cargo ship for crew use, nor is it clear whether a mission to Hubble could be completed in time for Trump's re-election campaign in 2020. It's a mini shuttle, so I automatically love it. Yeah. That's, that's just the way it works. But no, I mean, that, that's that's definitely a good idea if they can do that. It certainly could give them a new uh, prerogative yeah, a to new, get that thing going. A new lease of life for Dream Chaser. Yeah. Dream Chaser was always designed uh, to do exactly what the space shuttle didn't, which was having a shuttle on top of a rocket instead of having all the rocketry strapped to the side of the right. shuttle. Where, where yeah. your problems arise. 
Slightly. Yes. <laughs> At least if there's problems, you can jettison away. There is no jettison on a space shuttle. Not really. And that's the one thing I liked about the Dream Chaser. And if it can put some life back into it, they fought and fought and fought to get this little morsel of, oh, yeah, you can do a little bit for us. Because they were competing with SpaceX and they were competing with Boeing and they were competing with other people. But uh, it just didn't happen. Oh, hey, maybe now it will. No one else has anything that could go up to Hubble and fix it. Yeah. At least with this, they've got something. It still needs to be tested and so forth, but they've got it. No yeah. one else has anything. Exactly. Well, here's something. A team of astronomers is, well, I don't want to say they're asking for help from the public, but they have made a whole bunch of data on nearby stars available to the public. So this is a team led by the Carnegie Institution for Science, along with MIT, and they've released two decades worth of data as well as the software necessary and an online tutorial to try to help you know, to, for the public to be able to get a fresh look, shall we say, at over 1,600 nearby stars. So the, the team has found more than 100 potential exoplanets during a study and they've used the high-resolution shell spectrometer, which is HiRes. See, see, I see that, and being the computer geek, I think high-res. <laughs> you know, as opposed to low-res and all that. So I don't know if it's HiRes or high-res. <laughs> <laughs> My brain just can't decide which one of the two. But uh, this thing was designed to help astronomers measure wavelengths to determine the characteristics of the starlight, which that's how they detect exoplanets by measuring the wavelength and checking for dips that come by on a regular basis. The problem is that HIRES wasn't specifically optimized for that sort of thing. So it was designed to look at galaxies and quasars, not individual stars. But what they're hoping to do is, with all of this information that it's gathered, by making it available to the public, that the public will be able to utilize their own systems to be able to find data that they might not have been able to find yet. Sort of like, you know, I guess the SETI at home system. I mean, I haven't looked specifically at the software. I don't know if it works exactly like that. But uh, nonetheless, hey, if you've got some spare time and some, you know, some spare computational power, why not? You know, see if you can discover something out there. Yeah. Stargazing Live did a, a similar thing. I don't know if it was last year or the year before where they got the listeners. There was about, um, I don't know, 12 million people watching the show. Wow. And... They asked people to be part of this program where you could um, find a... Um, it was a special kind of supernova oh, wow. that they were looking for. Um, and they're very rare to find. The, the show went over three nights. And they got... The, all these people were looking at this. That, that it, you had, each of you had like a grid reference to look for something that was unusual. And if you found something, you reported it to the team... And over that course of three days, they actually found one of these. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, so it, it was actually named after the person who actually found it on live on the show. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. So it, it's people power. It does work. I mean, you imagine it. You, you've got 12 million people, which is more than, you know, you've got a small team of astronomers trying to look for something where you've got, like, 12 million people who are... The kind of people that watch that show are probably amateur astronomers anyway. And then, obviously, you, you report it back to the team, and then it gets verified whether it is something or just 
nothing in particular. Yeah, it was just amazing that they actually found one during huh. that those three days. It was really good. And I mean, that, that's just one thing where software just can't compare. Mm-hmm. We're good, we, you know, just evolutionarily speaking, if that's a word, that we're, we're good at catching things like that. Can't really do that in an algorithm easily anyway. No, that's true. That's very cool. I did not know that story. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's actually due again. This normally comes up in March, March, April time. So um, I'm gonna have to find out when that's actually going to be live this year. Um, that, that's cool. See, you, you folks who are listening to this, you probably think that he and I go over all these stories beforehand and that we're completely faking when we say we don't know something. Um, no, we don't play that game. I genuinely did not know that. I'd say probably half the things that you go over, I didn't know about. <laughs> Same goes the other way. Yeah. I mean, uh, so, it was just really good while, while there's, uh, there's two of us actually looking into these things because you were guaranteed you'll find something that I haven't seen and I'll find something that you haven't seen. Mm-hmm. So, Because you ever, ever listen to radio shows where there are like two or three people on and you know damn well that they knew the jokes and, and so forth beforehand because mm-hmm. their delivery is just awful <laughs> you know you can tell you, you know exactly that either what they're talking about is completely scripted or they already talked about it before yeah we don't do that here folks sorry it, it's all spontaneous a spacex dragon cargo ship aborted its rendezvous with the international space station early on uh, february the 22nd due to a navigation software glitch the unpiloted Dragon capsule aborted its approach to the space station at uh, 0825 UTC when it detected an incorrect value in the relative global positioning system software used to pinpoint its place in the sky with the orbit in the lab. The spacecraft was about 1,200 metres from the space station when the glitch occurred. The navigation software issue was corrected by SpaceX engineers, and I can confirm that the Dragon space capsule was captured earlier today uh, at uh, 0944 UTC by astronauts um, Shane Kimbra and uh, Thomas Pesquet of uh, the European Space Agency using the station's robotic arm. With that capture, uh, a dragon has now officially arrived at the ISS, said Pisquet, as he radioed to NASA's Mission Control Center in Houston after a successful rendezvous. We're happy indeed to have, have it on board and very much looking forward to putting to good use the two and a half tons of science that it carries. The dragon launched towards the space station on February the 19th atop a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket that lifted off from NASA's historic Pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center, which was a first for, for SpaceX. And the mission was the, the 10th cargo delivery for NASA from SpaceX, and that was an absolute beauty of, of a launch. That was amazing. That was <laughs> absolutely... I assume that you watched all the the footage from the stage you know from the stage one piece coming back down from the camera that was on board it yeah that was just amazing watching those little those little winglets or whatever you want to call them twisting and turning while it put itself right back on the mark because i was watching it the day before because it got uh it got scrubbed the day before and uh i was actually out shopping with my other half and we were walking around this department store and i had my 
noticed that they had free Wi-Fi in the shop. And uh, I was walking around with the live webcast from SpaceX nice. whilst we were walking around. And then it was like, oh, it's got scrubbed, right? Yeah. Phone back in the pocket, right, what were you showing me? You know, that kind of Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that whole launch was just amazing to watch. And then and we actually, for the, uh, this is maybe the first time that we actually had good footage of the thing finally landing. Well, we had. <laughs> Every other time as it's about to land, all of a sudden the camera just goes crazy. Um, it, it wasn't too bad the last time that it landed on terra firma. But it's normally when it's on one of the automated um, drone ships yeah. that uh, we have problems. But if you remember on the last one in the Pacific, on um, just read the instructions, it was the first time they'd ever got <laughs> a, a full landing captured on that one. But they're getting better. I mean, this stuff is going to become routine soon, but it's still amazing to look at. And yeah. I don't even want to think of the math that goes into that. I don't know if you saw the video that I put up of the first stage coming back to Earth back in December 2015. Um, I put it up there recently. It was taken from the National Geographic channel, uh, and it was some behind-the-scenes footage of Elon Musk, and he goes outside to see the rocket coming back down, and he hears this noise, and he, he looks up, and he goes, uh-oh. That looks bad. And all of a sudden it goes bang, and it just lands perfectly. And you can see him running across the courtyard. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a somebody else put on there, um, that's made my day. It's the first time I've ever seen Elon Musk run. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's an amazing piece of footage. It's, you know, he had a camera with him all the time. Um, and it's, it's sort of like a GoPro or something like that. And you can see the camera going backwards and forth, almost, you know, uh, Blair Witch Project kind of style, right. as it's following him across this courtyard. <laughs> well, it's an amazing piece of footage. I love this stuff. Have you ever heard of a boilerplate? Uh, yeah. Okay. I know it sounds like something you put on top of a hot water heater or something <laughs> like that. But a boilerplate is actually a mock-up of a, a space capsule that's designed for use in simulations. Mm -hmm. So where do they come up with boilerplate for that? It actually sounds like it should be on a steam train. Yeah. It's some, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, believe it or not, there actually is one of the original boilerplates. It was for underwater demolition testing in preparation for the Apollo missions. They don't say specifically any one, just you know, all of the Apollo missions. Yeah. Well, this was found in a junkyard. Two of them were found in a junkyard, basically, in Grove City, Pennsylvania, in a scrapyard. And apparently, someone named Kim Rogers, who's the owner of a nearby Dairy Queen, and this is in Franklin, Pennsylvania, which is, if you know anything about Pennsylvania, it's considered middle of nowhere, really. Okay. <laughs> the, well, the way Pennsylvania works is, like, all the major cities are on the outlying area of the state. And everything within, in the center of Pennsylvania is primarily just farmland and trees mm -hmm. and small towns scattered all over the place. Well, that's where one of these things is located in, in Franklin, Pennsylvania, which is about about 70 miles north of Pittsburgh. So, yeah, the owner of a Dairy Queen found this thing, bought well, at least bought one of them, 
transported it. The thing weighs three tons and is now sitting in front of, of this person's Dairy Queen. I'm assuming that they're a franchisee. So they've got one of the Apollo boilerplates sitting in front of their Dairy Queen <laughs> with a whole bunch of stuff on the inside talking about spaceflight history and, and that sort of thing at the front of the building. Wow. I mean, and apparently a former Navy person who worked with it verified, yep, this is one of those boilerplates. It's a bit like uh, at the, the National Space Museum in, in Leicester in the UK. They've got a Soyuz there. A, a, well, it is a complete one, but it's actually not complete because it's made from two halves. So it's the front end of one and the back end of another. And basically the main capsule part of it but they had the back end of it, but they didn't have a capsule to put on the front, to front of it for their exhibition. And uh, they were driving around Russia, and they pulled up in a car park or a parking lot somewhere uh, in Moscow. And there was this, what looked like a Soyuz capsule under some tarpaulin in this parking lot. <laughs> and they found the owner of the, of the parking lot and said, uh, do you know what that is? And they said, well, we know it's space-related. We don't know what it is. And uh, I said, okay. So they kind of didn't want to let on that they knew what it was. Right. And they offered them some money, and they just snapped their hand, you know, said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll take the money. Nice. Uh, so they actually got the front end of the Soyuz, and so they've got, now they've got a complete Soyuz on display at the National Space Center, which that was originally rusting away. In a yeah, in a parking lot in Moscow. Oh, that's nuts! <laughs> Actually, you know what? I'm not going to be I'm not going to be very far from Franklin in July. I'm going to be making this whirlwind tour, shall we say? I'm going to be going up to Canada. Of course, it's gaming related. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be going up to Canada, then swinging around like to Michigan and so forth to meet some friends of mine. But I'm going to be coming back basically from uh, around the Pittsburgh area, I might just swing up and take a look at that thing, grab some photos and that sort of thing. Because it's, it's like I said, if it's only 70 miles north of Pittsburgh, oh, wow, it's going to be a whole hour or so out of my way. Golly. So I might actually stop up and see that in July. That would be worth it, definitely. I think that would be. Yeah, this is something that was involved with the Apollo program, mm -hmm. and it's just sitting in the middle of a Pennsylvania small town. <laughs> <laughs> but it it definitely might be worth your while traveling. Bring up some gear, do an interview. That yeah. that might be worth it though. Just to say, hey, I was there. That's cool. Mm -hmm. See, th this is the one thing. I'm I'm a road warrior. You know, I drive eight hours to Boston to go to PAX East, which is in two weeks, by the way. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> the the gaming convention I'm going to go up to in Canada is about eight hours away. Pittsburgh yeah. is only three and a half, so that's not a problem. <laughs> Okay, so that's a, a roundup of the different uh, space stories that we have at the moment. When we come back, we'll be talking everything else a bit geeky. I've thought about it a lot. Why does Britain create so many great filmmakers and actors? What is it about Britain that seems to generate these people. It's pretty phenomenal, the influence we've had on, on like, global culture. 
we really punch above our weight. When we were making Rogue One, I sort of half-jokingly but half-meaning it said to the producers, well, wait, let's just shoot in Canary Wharf. There's all the guys in the suits, you know, coming home from work, and we're not allowed to tell anyone, it's really secretive, and we're thinking, OK, we're going to film Star Wars, and like, we had hidden Stormtrooper outfits and stuff, and we go in, and within an hour, turned it into the Empire. I went up to one of the art directors and was like, how did you, this was so good, like, how did you do this so quick? And he said, oh, we came in last night and we did a practice run. Like the extra mile that the crew would always go to, it's kind of like a military operation. The great thing about British crews is they've been doing this, you know, for generations and, and they've all inherited off the previous one all these little tricks of the trade. We had an assistant director on the film whose dad worked on the original New Hope and his job on that was to direct the X-Wing pilots for the, for the battle sequence. And his son on our film had exactly the same job. It was really weird. That felt really appropriate. The great thing is on set is no one says no. And you'd say to them, like, you can say no, you know, you, is, is this a problem? And they'd say, no, we don't, we don't do that. Like, they, they sort of pride themselves on giving you everything you want. There's something magical about Great Britain. There's so many great examples of British filmmakers, people like Hitchcock and David Lean. And it's funny, because even people, like, from outside of the UK, like Kubrick, he ended up making Britain his home because, you know, the crews were so good. I'm Gareth Edwards, director of Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and I'm very proud to say it was made great in Britain. Do you desire a place to get away? How about three? You truly belong here among the clouds on Bespin, the first stop on your Star Tours getaway package. Stay and play in the clouds and enjoy the spectacular Galaxy in the Skies fireworks pageant every single night. The fun continues on the forest moon of Endor, where you'll sleep under the stars with the lovable Ewoks in their charming tribal villages. Your third stop brings you to the peaceful world of Alderaan, where you can relax in a natural wonderland, recently voted safest planet in the galaxy by Hyperspace Traveler. This Star Tours getaway package is three times the fun in one, so ask your travel consultant to book yours today. into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. So, uh, there's been a lot going on in the uh, the world of Star Wars, as always. Just a little bit. <laughs> there's always something going on in, in the world of Star Wars. Woody Harrelson has confirmed the identity of his character in the standalone Han Solo movie. Have a listen to this. And Woody, we have to ask you a Star Wars question. Because it's been revealed that you're the uh, Han Solo mentor. Um, can you confirm that it's Garrus Shrike? Or what can you tell us? Confirm what? That you're playing that, uh, the character of Garrus. Um, Don't do it. I, I, do it. I, 
Don't I'm hearing the phones of the lawyers at Star Wars <laughs> ringing. Right think of Jeremy. Think of Jeremy. Uh, yeah, I, I am. So basically, yes, he is a, a character called Gary Shrike. Now, if, you, if you're trying to remember which Star Wars movie he was in, uh, he wasn't. <laughs> the, the character comes from the expanded universe, and he appeared in a number of Star Wars novels, beginning in the 1997 Paradise Snare. He was a former bounty hunter who turned to a life of crime, raising a number of orphans to do his bidding. One such orphan was Han Solo, who eventually rebelled against Shrike's cruel hold over him. It sounds a bit like Fagan. I was just thinking that. <laughs> I was going to say, who's the artful dodger? <laughs> that would be Lando. Um, <laughs> the uh, expanded universe was declared non-canon a few years back, but its characters could still show up in future Star Wars installments, which we all know has already happened with characters like Thrawn, who in the animated Star Wars Rebels made a big appearance so if harrison is indeed playing shrike he may not have the same backstory or personality that fans of the novels are familiar with or um lucasfilm may decide to make him a more likable mentor like his character in the hunger games nice nice <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeful for this hopefully it'll be a little bit lighter tone than rogue one Speaking of which, uh, Rogue One, they finally announced the official release dates for it. Uh, here in the States, it's going to be coming out for, for streaming or whatever, digital purchase, which is kind of a dumb phrase because it's digital even on the discs. But uh, that's coming out March 24th. The Blu-ray, the DVD, and so forth are going to be out April 4th in a very bizarre... Well, I don't want to say it's bizarre. I get it. If you want the 3D version, you have to get it at either Target or Best Buy. Not even Amazon seems to be selling the 3D version. But Target? Best Buy, I understand. But Target? Target seems to be, and you'll see this with some of the other stories I've got, one of the places to get a lot of exclusive Star Wars stuff for this 40th anniversary. I guess they made a deal. But the worst part is the two sets aren't even the same the the target exclusive is a five disc with uh, interchangeable character covers which is that's actually kind of cool uh as well as additional bonus features and and all that other stuff whereas best buys is a four disc set but it's got the metal steelbook packaging to it i kind of like the steelbook but man the box for the target one actually looks really cool there is also going to be a walmart exclusive but that's just going to be the blu-ray the dvd and then the you know the, the separate file but mm -hmm. it's going to have a packaging that looks like K2SO. UK, you guys are getting the discs, it looks like, on April 10th. Yeah, that's right. So you got less than a week to wait. Yeah, which is what happened with The Force Awakens as well. I'll, I'll be getting mine in 3D. <laughs> I thought you might. Of course. I mean, a little bit annoyed at the... I don't like exclusives. I do not like store exclusives. But I get why they're restricting 3D to those two stores, though. Oh, well, I wish 3D wasn't on the wasn't on the way out, but you heard my, what, 15-minute spiel about 3D post-mortem in my one show, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so th there's a lot of blame to go around for why 3D's going away. Well, at least in the home. It's still doing really well in theaters. In fact, for some movies, 3D is still making more than half the box office. I personally 
think that 3D is really made for the big screen. It's much better on the big screen. Well, big as relatives, because my TV is a 60-inch, and I love the 3D on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) For some people, that's a big screen. Yeah. (laughs) There are still a lot of questions when it comes to Star Wars The Last Jedi. Uh, For example, who is Benicio Del Toro playing? Now, a new rumour, though a little bit sketchy, is trying to answer that question. Previously, Del Toro's character, known only as the Man in Black, which probably means he's a villain if we're going to take Westworld standards. But according to the latest rumour, the the Guardians of the Galaxy star might actually be playing a character named Vikram Fett. As in Boba Fett relative? Yeah. (laughs) Now, why that exact name doesn't pop up in any of the Star Wars lore... The Fett surname certainly does. (laughs) The rumour comes from a guy called Mike Zero, who's um, one of these YouTube vloggers, who discovered through the the WikiWans search engine that Vikram Fett was listed as the name of Del Toro's character, only to soon be scrubbed and replaced with TBA. Now, this seems suspicious as someone had revealed the name of the character when they weren't supposed to and then erased it. So, yeah, there could be some relative of the Fets in The Last Jedi. That's interesting. But, you know, honestly, I'm at the point now where I don't believe any of that stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, just, there's so many websites out there who are so desperate for clickbait that it's just like, oh, hey, here's a rumor that we're exclusive because my brother's cousin's niece's friend's uncle mentioned it and they drove past the set and overheard a security guard. But no, just shut up. (laughs) I don't know. I'm I'm just not big on these rumors anymore. And then there's obviously the... uh... Uh, the other questions about the the last jedi in in general isn't there been that uh, the articles are about the uh, different international twitter feeds for star wars talking about the pronunciations of the the different titles in various different languages meaning that the, the last jedi is actually a plural of jedi yeah. which could lead to a lot of different things couldn't it really not i mean yeah it could that, that's another one of those things is jedi singular well you know in english anyway jedi is both singular and plural mm-hmm. so does that mean luke gets killed in the next movie and and raised the last jedi and it's like come on guys really but we now know that it's plural so it's almost certainly referring to just luke and ray but is it and there's always that question. There have been, you know, speculation out there that, oh, well, Kylo Ren is suddenly going to switch to being a Jedi. It's like, what? I'm sorry. That, that No, I don't see that one happening at all. Could there be more Jedi? Sure, they could. Could there, um, could there be some kind of Luke still have some students on that little island? I doubt it. He went to such measures to hide his location, and now suddenly he has students on there. Uh, and how would he have trained them? Because Ray has his lightsaber. Yes, uh, no, I'm not buying that one. And, and the whole Kylo Ren turns Jedi. Excuse me. He killed his father. Uh, spoiler alert. So that he could become more into the dark side of the Force. Actually, saying that about his lightsaber, the lightsaber that Ray had is the one that he lost in Empires, and he built another one since. True. That is true. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> 
I still don't think that there's anybody else on that island, though. They're looking to play with the whole Yoda Luke, now it's going to be Luke Ray. You know it. Always two there are. No more, no less. A master and an apprentice. Oh, yeah, that's true. So, I don't know. I'm just, it's good. We're going to find out in December. Yeah. So, hopefully, they'll have a, a trailer released soon. Well, uh, we're still. We're still a good 10 months away. Yeah, but it was coming about the same time as they had that little teaser thing last yeah. time with the, you know, Chewie were home. That came out about this sort of time. It was a bit earlier than this, actually, I think. We haven't really had a teaser. All we've had is True. That... Was, wasn't that in, like, the, the December before? It wasn't, yeah. like, almost a year ahead? Yeah. And we still don't have anything for this one. No, it was... A little bit different, though, because we know this movie's coming up there's hype behind it, but nothing like the hype that was behind the last movie. <laughs> just is like, oh my god, the first Star Wars movie in, in God knows how long, and it doesn't involve any of the prequels. <laughs> 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 so I can understand them releasing it a year in advance to build the hype, but the hype is already here, so they don't really need to do that now. I mean, they'll probably give us a teaser like next month or the month after, and then you know maybe three months later, the first major trailer. That'd be my guess. You'd have thought there would be some kind of little teaser thing, because all we've had is that it's in production thing. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, we know that it's now post-production. They've they've finished the primary shooting for it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll, we we got ten months to wait, no matter what. Um, we were talking about prequels just then. There's been some mention of Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> oh yeah, I heard about this. It's in a new book that's coming out, part of the um, Star Wars Aftermath books, and it actually says what has actually happened to, to Jar Jar Binks. Basically, he's been ousted. He's just... Nobody wants him anywhere near them, and he's just become a, like a, a beggar, but a clown, you know, juggling and things like that to try and beg for money. This is an actual extract from the book... The clown, they called him. Bring the clown. We want to see the clown. We like how he juggles glombo shells or spits fish into the air and catches them or how he dances around and falls on his butt. The adults, though, they don't say much about him or to him or none of the other Gungans come to see him either. Nobody even says his name. Eventually a child asks this mysterious dopey stranger for his name. And he says, Misa Jar Jar. <laughs> and then all the adults, why do they hate him? Um, and I'm not going to say this in, in Jar Jar speak. He's got it in Jar Jar speak here. Right. And he says, I'm not sure. I think it's because Jar Jar keeps making mistakes, big mistakes. The Gungan bosses banished me long ago. I've not been home for years. And the people of Naboo think I've helped the Empire. Well, he did. <laughs> His vote is what handed the Empire over, or what handed them over to the Empire. Mm. Hello. <laughs> uh, the in-universe explanation is that he inadvertently gave enough power to Palpatine to begin his empire during yep. his Senate career, which is absolutely true, yeah. So that's what's happened to Jar Jar. He's been cast out by everybody. So from becoming a member of Senate to... Uh, being a street bum basically yeah as much as as people hate him i 
really would have hoped for something more a little more dignified than that yeah you know as much as an, of an idiot as he was he was still doing what he thought was the right thing mm-hmm. so of I'm, course I can say this now many years on and we don't have to deal with him anymore <laughs> but he was pretty much pressured into making that vote anyway yeah. which is how politics go yeah it's just unfortunate it's nice in a way to see that there is some kind of closure as it were but not as we would have thought it would have been closure right right did, did you hear one of the other things that that book is doing remember how in jedi when after yoda died and uh luke is talking with with the uh, kenobi's force ghost and he mentions about so what i've told you is true from a certain point of view yeah everybody's just like oh that is so hokey and it was it was, it was a hokey line mm-hmm. they're retconning that in the book it actually becomes part of uh, like a, a Jedi prayer. It, it's actually a prayer from what's from the Journal of the Wills, obviously W H I L L S. Yeah. Like we know the one guy from Rogue, Rogue one. one. Yeah, he was uh, one of the uh, it, disciples he was one of the, of Will. the Wills. Yeah. yeah, disciples of the Wills. So this is from a Journal of the Wills, and the prayer says, "The truth in our soul is that nothing is true." Sounds more like a t- Assassin's Creed. Uh, the question of life is what then do we do? The burden is ours. To penance we hew. The force binds us all from a certain point of view. All right. Okay. I don't know which one sounds cheesier. <laughs> it does say, it sound like it's been written in a Hallmark card, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> it's just... Wow. So uh, apparently that's how he's how he's retconning that to make it seem like Obi-Wan was just pulling back a a type of prayer. (laughs) (laughs) I do do love the way that um, you've got the movies and the movies do bring up a few questions. There was always some gaps in there that need filling and the books come along and think, right, we need to fill these gaps. (laughs) Yeah, well, it makes you. I don't know. Was this to fill in the gaps, or was this meant to be just a wink to the reader? Uh, it might be. It might. Maybe be. a little bit of both. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> the force finds us all from a certain point of view. Kill me. <laughs> well, I mean, credit to him for doing that, though. Just even if it was just a wink to the audience. Mm-hmm. But they they do come across as really good books, actually. You know, that's, huh. I wonder how many more might be in there. Because when you think about it, Jar Jar was a spot that the audience was just like, oh, really? His statement about a certain point of view was one of those where the audience was like, oh, really? I wonder how many more of those he might have in the book. There's probably loads. (laughs) I I remember um, a few years ago, there was one of the Star Trek novels, and there was a, a reference to Red Dwarf. In there, it wasn't actually a a blatant oh red dwarf thing. There was just something that was said that was, huh, that's red dwarf. <laughs> I can't remember what it was, and it was obviously the person that had written the books was also a red dwarf fan as well. Nice. <laughs> well, you know, there, there's nothing to say that red dwarf didn't exist in the Star Trek universe. Um, you know. It's probably around about the same kind of time scale, ish. Twenty third century. 
Well, I mean, there was one episode of Voyager where they end up coming back in time because, you know, of course, Star Trek. And and Lieutenant Paris is just talking about all these cheesy 20th century zombie movies and monster movies and so forth. <laughs> so why couldn't Red Dwarf have been a cheesy 20th century TV show? Yeah, could be. Just, you know. Just putting it out there. It's like there's actually an episode of Red Dwarf where they actually go back to um, 1963 during the time of JFK's assassination, and um, because it's all set in the future and that's quite a distant past, they kind of get their history wrong. Dallas, 63, no doubt about it. Dallas, wasn't that place where that American king got assassinated? JFK. No, it was John something, not JFK. JFK, not JFK, you gimboid. Like the airport. I did a paper on him at school. I wonder why anyone would want to name their kid after an airport. The airport was named after the president. All right. So we didn't do 20th century history at my school. It didn't seem interesting to me. I mean, apart from nuclear fusion and some really snazzy card adverts, they did nothing. The last human being alive, and he's got less brains than a macaque rhesus monkey after the first course of a Vietnamese wedding banquet. <laughs> no, isn't there a new Red Dwarf series coming out? Uh, yeah, they, well, they, they filmed two series back to back. Uh, the reason for it is they're getting on a bit and they, they just wanted to try and <laughs> film them while they were still uh, Fair age. enough. Otherwise, it would have been another five or six years before another series comes out and <laughs> they might be too old to actually film it then. Talking of which, Craig Charles, who uh, plays Lister in Red Dwarf, is going to be the new host of a show in the UK called The Gadget Show which you can probably guess what that's all about, reviewing gadgets and things. Uh, and they have this thing every April in uh, one of the big exhibition centres uh, in the UK, at the National Exhibition Centre in Birmingham, called the Gadget Show Live, which is um, our big gadget exhibition. <laughs> they have a big thing where the, the hosts of the show actually come down and uh, do different things live on stage so uh, he's, it'll be the first outing for him as uh, one of the hosts so that'll be interesting I want to see if I can get press accreditation for that <laughs> ah, nice to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Star Wars, Hasbro has been going back to the beginning of Star Wars by recreating the famed Kenner Early Bird Certificate for the action figures in 1977. Hasbro has unveiled a new Star Wars 40th anniversary legacy pack and a ton of other toys from a galaxy far, far away. The legacy pack comes with a detailed Darth Vader figure and a cardboard background art that recreates the original Kenner display art. And there's a surprise on the other side. When you turn it around, there's an actual battle scene on there, so you can, if you've got the figures out, you can recreate different things. It's, I think it's a Death Star scene, I think. I'm having serious flashbacks looking at those things. They are gorgeous, aren't they? Wow. And they even have the Kenner logo up front. Mm-hmm. The main legacy pack with Darth Vader will be thirty nine ninety nine. That's dollars or thirty two pounds when it was released. Um, what you got to remember: these figures are actually 
Black Series figures, so they are going to be incredibly detailed. Hasbro has also unveiled a new centrepiece displays for the Black Series figures, one with Vader in a classic dark side form and the other with Luke Skywalker on it, along with exclusive figures to be released at Target, Walmart and GameStop. And also there's going to be ones that are exclusive to Star Wars celebrations, which is in April. The first wave of these figures, so once you've got the Darth Vader one, you want to complete the set for the the, the box, basically. And each of those figures will be $20 each. Not surprised. And they're still going to sell out like crazy. Yeah. And these will include repackages of Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Princess Leia, Obi-Wan Kenobi, R2-D2 in their classic cases... And they'll be joined later in the year by Chewbacca, C-3PO, a Death Squad commander, which is what Kenner originally gave to the Death Star troopers. A Tusken Raider, a Jawa, uh, Darth Vader you can buy separately if you didn't want to get the, the pack, and a Stormtrooper. There is so much. And that right there is $300 just for that. Yeah. And you know there'll be more. The Celebration exclusive will be a 6-inch Luke Skywalker in his X-Wing pilot uniform. It, it looks like the, the classic Kenner packaging. You know you've got that kind of like a piping round the, round the black. Mm-hmm. This is actually done in silver foil. Ooh, nice. So that's exclusive at Star Wars Celebration. GameStop will be releasing an exclusive R5-D4 figure. Yeah. An exclusive AT-ACT driver will be available at Target stores later this year. And finally, if you're looking for something a little bit smaller, Walmart stores will be featuring an exclusive 3.75-inch 4-pack featuring some iconic characters, including what appears to be a Boba Fett in the white Mandalorian armor from the original design. I want one. Yes. <laughs> I've always wanted Oh, you, you might have a, a, a friend over here in the States that could act as proxy for you. Maybe. <laughs> you know, maybe. The, the Star Wars Celebration 2017, which is the official annual convention for Star Wars fans, will be held in Orlando, Florida, and will take place from April the 13th to April the 16th at the Orange County Convention Center. And the topic for the very first panel that will kick off the weekend has been revealed. Celebration host Warwick Davis will invite Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy along with some of the series' bright stars on stage to discuss Star Wars 40th anniversary, which happens to occur just about a month after this year's celebration. The event's website has also revealed a gorgeous new key art that will accompany such a prestigious occasion. The poster art includes characters from all three trilogies in the ongoing Star Wars saga, although notably absent is the direct reference to Rogue One. So there's nothing about Rogue One on the poster. Just the, just oh. the, the three generations of uh, trilogy. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I kind of get that. I'm not saying that I agree with it, but I mean, especially when you figure that Rogue One has made over a billion dollars globally. Um, Star Wars Celebration Europe uh, in London last year, the big thing was Rogue One. They had a big right. Rogue One exhibition. Uh, it was on all over the posters. It was kind of a mashup of um, Rogue One and uh, The Force Awakens. I, I get it. 
Looking forward to, hopefully, they're going to be streaming the entire event like they did uh, over the last couple of years. Would be nice. I, mean, I just want the announcement that the original trilogy is going to be released on Blu-ray or 4K without, you know, as they were originally shown in theaters. There's a possibility they might do something for God. the anniversary. I know there are... I don't know if they're the originals or the special editions, probably the special editions, uh, but there are cinemas around the States that are going to be doing back-to-back screenings of... I, I don't know if that means all of the, the prequels, the, the the main ones and the... Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. That'll be a long, long... <laughs> yep. I mean, I, I remember going to see it when they reran. Star Wars in the early 80s. They reran it in the UK as a back-to-back thing with all three of the, the trilogy. Yeah, I remember taking a sleeping bag as well. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, yeah. There's a guy <laughs> over here who, who does that sort of thing, except he doesn't tell you what movies are part of it, but he calls it a butt numathon, <laughs> and it's like 24 hours of just a whole bunch of movies. But then he'll also have things like the people who star in those movies will come out. Yeah. So you don't know what the movies are, but yet the the people who are in you know the main actors might be coming out for it. It's like that's kind of cool, but kind of terrifying. Do you have the um, the secret cinema events in the states that? doesn't ring a bell basically uh, you know in advance what movie it's going to be but you don't know where it's going to be held and they, they normally have it in um, uh, some weird and wonderful locations uh, and they make a, a makeshift screen and everything and they encourage people to come dressed up as characters in that movie for it uh, and last year one of the showings was Empire Strikes Back and my friend went and he took photographs and it was really weird to see tube trains full of X-Wing pilots and um, <laughs> all heading to London for this um, it, 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 kidding that would be awesome um, see I, I'm, a, I'm a geek and a nerd I'd love that <laughs> I'll tell you one thing that I, I saw it on TV today and I'm not, not sure if it's available in, a, in in the States, but it's not made by the same people who did the, you know, the um, the, the Star Trek comic book volumes that in weekly parts that I, I showed you the website for and you said, oh, it's not available in the States. Yeah. There's a different company that do it, but it's all about Assassin's Creed. And it's all about oh. the history of the assassins. And there's these um, kind of, um, uh, what do you call them, statuettes of the different characters. I might already have some statuettes of Assassin's Creed characters. <laughs> might. But the, but the, these... And I might, I might also subscribe to multiple Assassin's Creed comic books, maybe. Oh, right. Sort of. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But I saw it I've got different comics lately, what can I say? And I thought, ooh, because th- this is more like um, a fact file, telling about the history of each of the characters, and uh, there's maps in there of different stuff and about the order of, of the assassins and all this kind of stuff. I, yeah, you know, I, I might be into Assassin's Creed a little bit. <laughs> but um, I saw it today, I just thought, oh, John. And <laughs> yep. <laughs> 
I'm not ashamed of that. I love the series. Mm-hmm. I play the crap out of those games. So, yeah, there's a hell of a lot going on in Star Wars at the moment. Hey, there's some stuff going on in Star Trek, too. Yeah, especially with uh, with the new series coming up. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's been... Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen the, the, that photograph that's doing the rounds of uh, a, a group of some kind of alien on their tea break or coffee break. It was taken by an extra that was in the in the filming. And he seems to think they might be Klingons. Yes, I do remember reading that. Um, um, they I, are a type of Klingon. It's I don't know. <laughs> I'm just I'm not feeling this new series. I'm just not feeling it. And I don't think a lot of people are. You know, it, it's one thing to introduce a new series, and that's fine. But first of all, they're hiding it behind a paywall. That ticked a lot of fans off. You know, so if you want to watch this, at least in America, you have to pay for CBS All Access. Not going to do Netflix or Amazon. That soured a lot of people. And I'm sorry, but that new Starship is ugly. That is one of the most hideous looking Starships I have ever seen. And it's it's just, I saw that as like, oh, uh, really? The Enterprise from Enterprise. That was a cool looking Starship, even mm-hmm. though I didn't really care for the series. I mean, it, it looks like a regular Federation starship and like an, an old Klingon to Kinga class warship and maybe even a little bit of Romulan Warbird. They all had this massive orgy and produced this ugly nastiness. Just like, eh, what? and then now they see the Klingons are a different kind of Klingon than what we're used to. It's just like, ah, I, I just I'm just not feeling it. Is it supposed to be closer to the original than yes. the movies? Yeah, yeah. In the timeline, it's supposed to be closer to the original. Mm-hmm. But still, it's just uh, not feeling it. But yeah, I, I took one look at them and I went, no, nah, they don't look right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it looks like the the J.J. Abrams kinds of Klingons. Mm-hmm. Which is just, yeah. At least in Deep Space Nine, they had a little bit of fun with it. And, you know, when they did the Tribbles flashback episode. Yeah, that was a really good episode. One of the best episodes in, in just about any Star Trek. But they're just like, they are Klingons, and it is a long story. We do not discuss it with outsiders. Done. They at least had a little bit of fun with it. I don't know. I'm just, who knows? We'll see. Well, we're looking at cutting the cord anyway. So if that happens, we'll probably end up getting the CBS All Access regardless because Faith loves, like, NCIS and shows like that that are available through it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not going to go and pay extra just to see a Star Trek TV series. It doesn't look all that interesting to me. Yeah, One, one article that's been making the rounds, speaking of Deep Space Nine, uh, obviously we've got the original series in high def on Blu-ray because my wife got me that for Christmas, which was awesome. So also the animated series was in that set. Mm-hmm. We've got the next generation on high def. You know, for Blu-ray, they remastered all that. Sadly, it looks like we will never, ever, ever get Blu-ray releases for Deep Space Nine and Voyager. So there's a whole article on this one, um, and one of the, this is from the guy who actually worked on the restoration for the next generation. And he was talking about all the stuff that they had to do for that. What a lot of people don't know is when the next gen Blu-ray series came out. It was just stupid expensive. And a lot of people were like, whoa, we're not paying that. 
That's so it didn't sell well, even though it was pristine. You know, meanwhile, the original series and so forth significantly lower prices. Well, the reason was the original series and the animated series had the complete final version of each episode already on 35 millimeter film. Mm-hmm. So all they had to do was scan that, restore it, clean it up, done. With Next Gen, they only had the live action parts on 35 millimeter film. So they had to go back and digitally recreate all of the special effects and that's sort of, but I mean even stuff like the starships those were still available on 35 millimeter mm-hmm. so they were able to rescan all of the elements and then bring them in together clean them up uh, put in other special effects where needed so it still made it it made the set more expensive to recoup those costs but it's still the original elements unfortunately because of cost and speed deep space 9 and voyager were all done in NTSC format. Ooh. So the resolution right there is locked to 720 by 480, and that's how it was all done. So even even most of the uh, you know, the space animations and so forth, they weren't models; they were CGI. So they were all rendered, and they were all rendered in standard def format. E- even if they still had all of the CG elements they'd still have to hire a bunch of artists to go in and add high-definition detail, which would take ridiculous amounts of time and money. But apparently the special effects house that did most of that work, they don't have most of those elements anymore. So they'd have to be recreated from scratch. Imagine some of the major battle scenes later on in that series with, you know, a hundred different starships. They would have to recreate every single one from scratch. Yeah, that would be very expensive. They're talking like 10 to $20 million for each, like for DS9, in addition to Voyager. And they said there's just no way that people are going to buy those in disc format. And it's not really going to be worth it to do it for streaming either. It's just way too much money to spend to try to recreate any of that. Plus, DS9 and Voyager are not considered to be two of the more popular series. That's... Next Generation is definitely probably the most popular out of all of them Mm. that was kind of worth the expense but because the discs were so expensive Mm -hmm. not enough people bought them to recoup costs so you know damn well they're not going to sell enough ds9 and voyager sets to recoup the costs uh i mean ds9 is an awesome series i love it um voyager (sighs) yeah I, i i i don't I'm not a big fan of Janeway, so it's... Uh, I found her very monotone and nasal the way she spoke. And I was like, uh, it's all right when it seems when she wasn't in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I even... Robert Picardo actually uh, came by on a tour a few years ago. So we went down to, to see him and get his autograph and get pictures with him. And I told him flat out, he and Seven of Nine were the only two who really made that show worth watching. Mm-hmm. Because they, they were the only characters that really developed over the series. You know, there, there was a distinct difference between the Doctor at the start and at the end. And same thing with Seven of Nine. And then the way those two interacted with each other was really well done. But it just wasn't really worth it. You know, and plus Voyager was when the writers started to say, oh... Here's our political statement. Bam! Throw it at you. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, you don't do that. 
write it into the story. Don't wrap the story around a political brick and throw it at us. That really turned me off with, with Voyager as well. And then there was talk of that um, they were going to do one about the Academy, weren't they? There was going to be a... Oh, yeah, that's right. There was. And it was kind of... I don't know whether they were going to follow um, Wesley Crusher when he went into uh, into the Academy, but I just looked... Somewhere. Eh. Is is this going to be 90210 in space? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I probably would have been more interested to see that than I am of the upcoming Discovery. <laughs> but that could have been an interesting concept. Yeah, that could have been. That could have been. Hey, did you see the um, that Indiegogo campaign for Deep Space Nine? Uh, no, I haven't. No? Oh, this is really cool. It's called What We Left Behind, and I've already, I'm a backer of it, clearly. But it's it's actually being spearheaded by the executive producer for Deep Space Nine, Iris Stephen Bear, I think his name is. He's getting everybody except Cisco. Unfortunately, Avery Brooks just has kind of poo-pooed the whole Deep Space Nine since the series ended. Mm-hmm. But pretty much everybody else is getting back for this documentary that he's making. Oh, right. They're originally asking for hundred basically 150000 They've already made 350000 So one of the things that they're going to include with that is basically the whole bunch of the writers are going to come back, and they're going to have this big brainstorming session of what they would have done if DS9 went into a Series 8, which, I mean, that would have been really cool. And, of course, you know, they're going to be talking with all of the actors you know, about the role and, and just looking back at it and so forth. I'm really looking forward to this. It's just simply called What We Left Behind, Star Trek Deep Space Nine Doc. Mm-hmm. Documentary. And uh, so it looks like that's going to be going on. But, man, some of the like the higher tier benefits that they had... Is a, let's see, if you were three thousand dollars, it was a you'd be an associate producer. Those are all gone. Uh, Two thousand dollars was a dinner party at Nana Visitor's place. She would actually cook dinner for you. <laughs> and that that's in New York City. Somebody snatched that one up. One that's still available is the guy who played Vic Fontaine. Mm-hmm. James Darren would actually he would take you to his favorite Italian restaurant, possibly even sing for you. That's still available. Uh, lunch with Ira on the lot. Just a whole bunch of different things going on. Needless to say, I took one of the cheaper ones, but that's okay. It's just really cool. I will also give this warning. They're coming out with a new 2017 re-release of the, the DS9 box set. So I will admit it's a really cool-looking box, um, and it's going to have all the episodes, but it's basically going to be the same thing that they've already released, just a different packaging. Right. Okay. So, just if you already have all of the Deep Space Nine discs, this isn't going to do you any good. And it's, that is all it's going to be. There won't be anything else, as you say, because they can't. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just not, not physically financially feasible. Yeah. You know, and they even admitted that, yeah, streaming takes a lot into this. You know, Star Trek is on Netflix, so it gets watched a lot there uh, the next generation is actually a cash cow for of all channels bbc america which is mind-blowing but still just the fact that they wanted to do this documentary and they're bringing everybody back and i want to hear what they would have done for an eighth season yeah so that that, that that indiegogo campaign is out there it's got 15 days left as we record this and like i said they've already beat their goal and they, they have uh 
stretch goals as well that they're trying to do, like additional roundtable interviews with the cast and crew, bonus items, stuff like that. They don't say – well, they have down here what they – would do if they have $500,000, but it looks like they put it into Bajoran text. Sneaky little jerks. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you exactly what the $500,000 one would be, but uh, there's something else coming out that's Trek-related that I want this for sure. And it's it's just an upcoming book, but it's more like a technical kind of thing. Yeah, there was a Star Trek technical manual released God knows how many years ago. Uh, in fact, I, I still have mine. But this is called The Science of Star Trek from Tricorders to Warp Drive. So it's going to be hardcover. It's going to be coming out in October. And basically, it's going to take a look, a, a detailed look, at over 25 of the inventions from the whole Star Trek franchise. Let's see if they have some examples here. Like, well, you know, like tricorders, communicators, phasers, you know, the starships themselves, how they work, that sort of thing. Uh, so it's going to be 208 pages, which is that's not too bad. Uh, it's only going to cost 30 bucks. So right now it can be pre-ordered. Uh, looks like it's from Voyager Press. <laughs> no, not that that kind of Voyager. V o y a g e u r. I guess it's the French starship. <laughs> so you know, it can be pre-ordered. It says that it's going to have over 150 film and television stills, prop photography, scientific diagrams, and all that other kind of stuff. I'm, I'm going to be ordering that one. Talking of books, did, did you order that um, Space Shuttle one in the end? I didn't. I should. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't. No, I didn't. Oh, okay. I was about to say there's an awkward pause there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, if, if I had the money, I would. But uh, no, I've, I've, I've got my uh, Haynes manual. There you go. Yeah, wasn't that like a hundred bucks for the set? Yeah. Which in and of itself, that's not bad. You know, for for three big hardcover books. Yeah, it's pretty good going. There's actually a new uh, Haynes manual just come out that I've uh, I think I'll put a link to on the the Facebook page. It's Haynes manual for astronauts. So it, you know, it tells you all about the the different spacesuits that they've had over the years and um, different functions and. All that kind of thing. Nice. And about all the training that they have to go through and uh, stuff like that. So it's, that looks uh, an interesting book. Still trying to get them to, to shake hands with me at Haynes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're still just little fish in the big pond. Yeah, a bit. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com So we've come to the end of another uh, packed show. <laughs> we always seem to do that. Yeah, we, we do tend to, to get a lot in the show. We, we try and get in as much as we can. Um, and I just thought, as because we, we hadn't had... Uh, sci-fi one for a while but there is a lot of space related news out there i thought we'd 
best to cover both aspects of it. Um, I hope you enjoy what we've done with it this time around. So once again, John, it's uh, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me back. I'm surprised you haven't had people writing you saying get rid of them. Of course, maybe you haven't. You haven't told me. <laughs> nah, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> And uh, thanks to everyone out there for listening, and uh, we will speak to you all again very soon. Doodles! It'll be in there, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. <laughs>